Veteran Australian Diplomat Speaks Out Against War Danger, Part 2. Coming up on Citizens Insight. Welcome to Citizens Insight, the Citizens Party's interview series on matters of national and international importance. My guest today, backed by popular demand, is retired Australian diplomat John Lander. Welcome, John. Thank you, Robbie. Uh, it's good to be back. John, you're back at a very important time this week. I, I didn't think it could get worse, the, 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 uh, the, the rhetoric in Australia that we discussed last time is... Um, leading us down the path to war with China. This week it suddenly has. And we'll talk about that in a minute, what the, Mr Morrison, Mr Dutton, Penny Wong have said this week that is off the charts. Um, but before we do, let's just uh, talk about, follow on from what our last discussion, because this is part two of that discussion. It was very well received. Um, you've had some uh, feedback that you'd like to respond to? Yes, oh, just before I do, just a comment on um, your remarks about how things have got a lot worse. Yeah. Um, uh, Morrison from marketing, of course, has come up with a new slogan, which the arc of autocracy. Yes. But uh, he clearly has the ambition to be a member of that. Uh, <laughs> his uh, extremely autocratic and paternalistic response to uh, the developments in the Solomon Islands yes. uh, really reveals his highly autocratic uh, approach to uh, not only relations with China but relations with everybody. And uh, uh, of course, all of the decisions that have been taken in uh, foreign and defence policy over the last couple of years have in themselves been autocratic decisions. There's been no debate. Uh, in the Parliament, no consultation with the people on any of these huge expenditure commitments which directly affect the welfare of all Australians. But we have no say in it. And another example of that, as highlighted by an organisation called the Australian War Powers Reform Organisation, is that if we did go to war, it's solely Scott Morrison's decision, not Parliament's. That's right, uh, which of course is utterly terrifies me. In yep. fact, um, the, the comments in this past week uh, reduced me to such despair that I took to my bed for a day feeling that um, there really wasn't any point in me proceeding with this conversation with you today uh, because uh, it's like a voice crying in the wilderness, no one's listening. Well, um, I'm very sorry to hear that you had that experience. Um, we've got you on here because our party is determined to make people listen. And if, and if war, if the actual uh, announcement this week that we're preparing for war doesn't snap people out of it, I don't know what will. But we can certainly help inform why they should be as alarmed as we are. Mm. So uh, I'm, I'm gratified at the response to our previous conversation. Mm. Uh, I believe it's over 24,000 views now. Yep. Uh, and I have looked at some of the comments uh, from people who have viewed that earlier discussion and I thought it would be useful for me to just very quickly respond to sure. a couple of the more outstanding ones, the ones that seem to be repeated by uh, different uh, individuals. One was the comment that I was looking at China through rose-coloured spectacles because we talked about the approval ratings yes. uh, of the, uh, the Communist Party of China um, amongst the ordinary people in China. Uh, and I just wanted to say that I certainly am not. I, have, uh, I was in China at the end of the Cultural Revolution. I saw what happened uh, some years later with the Tiananmen Square. Um, I have uh, observed the measures that China has taken to restore order in both Xinjiang and in Hong Kong. And whilst I would criticise some aspects of the ruthlessness with which the Communist Party of China can 
uh, exert in order to maintain uh, the integrity of its sovereign mm. territory and the control over its vast population, neither of those two aspects is an indication of aggressive intent yep. uh, against the outside world. Uh, China has never, uh, in any public uh, or policy statement, has never actually said that it has an intention to evade, invade Australia. Um, so the notion of Mr Dutton that we have to protect ourselves from the impending Chinese invasion is arrant nonsense. Uh, China has never in fact indicated that it plans to invade anywhere in the world, in contrast to the United States, which has invaded countries uh, continuously since the end of the Second World War. Vietnam, uh, in Latin America, Libya, Syria, um, Iraq, Afghanistan, all of which has led to the loss of millions upon millions of lives and many tens of millions of refugees um, whom we receive with uh, the cruel uh, and yep. indefinite uh, detention uh, for the crime of seeking a better life. And you've had some direct experience with those people who've been yes, subject I, to that Yes, I, I, I attended a meeting with the people. Who, the government quietly released the, the detainees in the Park Hotel a couple of weeks ago as, as an apparent election ploy. Um, <clears throat> so it basically opened the doors of the hotel, gave each man $300 and said, right, you're on your own. After nine to ten years in prison, uh, I attended a um, refugee support group's uh, dinner for these men um, last week. And in talking to them, I met one man who told me his story, that as he was leaving Tehran with his then pregnant wife, he was boarded onto the plane, but his wife was detained because she was too pregnant to fly. He thought she would be able to come later after the child was born. He arrived in Australia, was immediately placed in detention. Nine years later, he still has not met his son. Yeah. And I call that cruel and inhuman treatment. Yes, I absolutely agree. And, and can I just say, back to the language you used earlier, where people, there may be some grounds to criticise China's ruthlessness in, in preserving its integrity over its territory and its vast population, as you said, our own policy towards refugees, which we claim is for our uh, security. Border security is the definition of ruthless. Yes, absolutely. The human, the human element doesn't come into it. That's right. There is no compassion in Australian policy. Yeah. Yep. <clears throat> uh, my other uh, fairly frequent comment was uh, along the lines of, well, what about the Uyghurs? They certainly wouldn't uh, support uh, the Chinese government um, because of... Uh, the human rights violations against the Uyghurs. Uh, my response to that is, first of all, anybody who's interested, I recommend you read the paper that I published in Pearls and Irritations and was, has been also published by the Citizens Report um, about the uh, situation in Xinjiang. I have said that I cannot say for certain whether there have been breaches of human rights in Xinjiang or not, because I haven't been there. That is true of all of those who insist that there have been breaches yes. of human rights. Yes. They have not been there. Uh, my point was the absolute hypocrisy of Australia and the United States in criticising China for breaching the rights of Muslims in China, the number one human right in the Charter of Human Rights uh, is the right to life. Mm. And I think those some statistics need to be quoted. The US, aided by Australia in the so-called War on Terror, has killed 
168,307 Muslims in Afghanistan, 297,564 Muslims in Iraq, 66,368 Muslims in Pakistan, 252,600 Muslims in Syria, and 112,011 Muslims in Yemen. This is data published by the Watson Institute of Brown University in Rhode Island, USA. Yep. So that is their conservative estimate of the number of people, number of Muslims who have been deprived of life. Uh, to say nothing of the many hundreds of thousands, some millions, who have been made refugees. In the name of either democracy or our security. Yes, <laughs> particularly yeah, our security. Uh, it's also worth observing that uh, with only 4.2% of the world's population, the United States has more than 20% of world prisoners, of people yes. in prison. And Australia is not much better. The, the population of Aboriginals in Australia is 4 point, around 4%. Yep. And 25% of people in prison in Australia are of uh, the First Nations peoples. Yep. So people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones, is my point. That uh, if we had a clean record on observance of human rights, we might have some cause to criticise China. Uh, also, I would urge everyone, if they haven't yet seen it, it, to read Jack James's report uh, on the Aspie report on so-called forced labour of Uyghurs in China. A very important report. That is an 80-page academic legal analysis of the so-called evidence that Aspie has drawn on to make that accusation. And <clears throat> it clearly demonstrates that there is not one single piece of evidence that stands up to scrutiny. That doesn't mean that I'm saying there is no breach of human rights against Muslims in China. What I am saying is that a report like that throws so much doubt mm. on the story that Aspie is putting out that we have to doubt everything else that yes. is said about human rights in China. Uh, moving on, <laughs> uh, and referring again to our previous conversation, uh, I'd just like also to remind people of the uh, formula that uh, we reached in the policy planning paper in June uh, 1971 that Australia should formulate independent policies based on Australian national interests and those of our nearer neighbours. Now, John, you've got a few examples of how in the diplomatic service you pursued that ideal for Australia. But just before you give those examples, just remind the viewer how that formulation came about. What was, what was in your mind and your colleagues' mind that made you formulate that as an approach for our country at the time? Um, it was because uh, we were desperately scrambling to um, organise the processes for the recognition of the People's Republic of China because we'd just been blindsided by Nixon and Kissinger with their um, overtures to opening up relations with the People's Republic of China. Right. And we had been left completely flat-footed uh, and uh, realised that uh, the United States would act only in its own interests and would not consider the interests of any of its partners if it suited them to uh, just move in in its own interest. Yeah. And that has been repeated time and time and time again up to the present day. Most recently in the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Yeah. Uh, so that was the, the reasoning behind it. Um, the government didn't entirely take that policy position on board. 
and Malcolm Fraser came around to that view yeah. in his last years Later after he had yeah. retired. Uh, and uh, in his book, The um, Dangerous, Dangerous Allies, Allies he, has come to, he came to the conclusion there that Australia should seek to move away from its intimate strategic dependence on the United States. And what has happened instead, of course, is that strategic dependence on the United States has become so completely locked in that we have lost what little independence we did have. Uh, and that gets me onto the stories, yep. because when I was in uh, when I was in foreign affairs, uh, we were quietly working to assert at least a modicum of independence or freedom of operation within the context of the alliance with the United States. By comparison today, in quite uh, it's, when you first told me this story. Um, between the two of us, I, I was blown away, to be honest, because it's it's a stark contrast to how our foreign service seems to op operate today. So um, the first story is when you were serving as ambassador to Iran in the late yeah. 1980s. Yeah. I was Australia's first ambassador to the Islamic Republic of Iran. And just as a side comment, the Islamic Republic introduced universal suffrage and popular elections to the parliament for the very first time in Iran's history. Uh -huh. So Iran is arguably more, a more democratic country today yeah. than it was under the Shah. Yes. Uh, but while I was there as ambassador, my prime directive was to sustain uh, and maintain Australia's neutrality on the question of the Iran-Iraq war. And at that point, uh, the US was fairly clearly supporting Iraq yep. against Iran. And the US was uh, Iran's only declared enemy in the world at that point. And I got word that the Australian government, government was considering placing Australian military personnel on US warships in the Gulf. And that set all sorts of alarm bells ringing and I went rushing into the foreign ministry to talk to them about it and they said to me, you know, if you put military personnel on American warships in the Gulf, that's tantamount to joining the enemy and that means we cannot trade with you. My other directive while I was in Iran was to uh, promote, enhance Australia's trade with Iran. I went there when we had a balance of $40 million in trade with Iran. By the time I left, it was up to $400 million. And that was just in three years or so? Yes. Rapid and growth. So we have been rapidly moving to a strong trading relationship with Iran. Yep. And uh, the Iranian foreign minister, said, foreign minister said, you know, we cannot continue trading with you if you join the enemy. Uh, we will have to purchase our wheat elsewhere. And that's what Australian, Australian personnel on US warships meant, we would be joining the enemy. Yes. And so in my submission to Cabinet, I argued that uh, we would lose $300 million worth of wheat trade with Iran at a time when Australian farmers were dumping wheat on the steps yep. of Parliament House in protest at what was happening to Australia's wheat trade worldwide. Uh, and unless the states on the other side, all the Gulf states, uh, Saudi Arabia in particular, would guarantee to replace the value of the loss of trade with Iran, we should not go ahead. And uh, I'm very pleased to say my argument won the day and the government decided to shelve consideration of that move. So uh, I had said to the Iranian foreign minister, it won't happen on my watch, to quote <laughs> right. President Biden, yeah. and it didn't. So this is an example where the Australian cabinet put our national interest in the form of our trade ahead of our relationship 
with the United States. In particular, ahead of our military alliance with the United yes. States. Yes. Uh, we pursued our own national interest when it was in, in our interest to do so. And um, we had that room for manoeuvre then. It seems to me we don't have that room for manoeuvre anymore. Well, there's a stark contrast to 2020 where we s willfully and deliberately sabotaged our own trade with China in order to... At the behest of the United States. At the behest of the United States, march in lockstep on this blame China for, for COVID yeah. agenda. Yes, and of course it was not, uh, not long before that that uh, uh, Mr Morrison had warmly welcomed the BRI in Parliament. Yep. You know, the Belt and Road Initiative, the uh, proposal for China's uh, uh, infrastructure development program for neighbouring countries and further afield. We welcomed that. Morrison said it was a great idea. Then we had the visits of the US Secretary of State and suddenly we turn around and say, oh, it's a terrible idea. Yep. Um, yep. You know, it, it's a sign of Chinese aggression. <laughs> uh, and so we have to pull out. And uh, it's, uh, you know, we have been moving further and further down this path of, of um, conflict with China. So you could say from your experience, it's not like America's changed. We're the ones that have changed. We had, we had a, you, you saw a cabinet make a decision with a degree of independence that just doesn't seem to exist there at all anymore today. And it's not as if in your day, in the, in, when this happened in the 1980s, there weren't some very strong pro-American forces in the, on the Australian government. Oh, indeed there were. Um, <coughs> so the fact that your advice carried the day is even more extraordinary. Yes, well, <laughs> that reminds me of another incident which is related to that. During my time as ambassador in, in Tehran, I was home on leave and consultations and had a, uh, a meeting with the intelligence, the Australian intelligence community, the Office of National Assessments and Joint Intelligence Organisation and so on. And I presented my analysis of the, the Iran-Iraq war as being uh, in the United States' favour, in the interests of the United States, that uh, as long as that war continued, it benefited United States control over oil supplies yep. to the world, and in particular to the Western world. Well, all those intelligence operatives almost ate me alive. <laughs> um, they were uh, unanimous in their parroting of the US line that the US was seeking peace in the Middle East. Right. And as far as I could see from where I sat in Tehran, that was not the case. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so we, we have, by hewing to the American line, and as you say, America hasn't changed. Mm. America has followed the Wolfowitz Doctrine, which was enunciated when the Soviet Union dissolved, uh, and that's quite a while ago. Uh, and has been pursuing that ever since. And that doctrine says that no country can be, or must, any country must be prevented from uh, rising to the point where it can challenge the United States' supremacy in the world. United States is the number one superpower yep. and no one may be permitted to challenge it. And as Noam Chomsky said, just recently in an interview he did, that China has committed the unpardonable sin of existing and succeeding, and, and that it has been successful in defying US order. And that's the reason yeah. for this ramping up of this so-called threat of China to the world. The threat of China to the world is that it will succeed in implementing its policy of making the world order, in particular through the United Nations and its organisations, fairer to the developing world. That's their policy. Yep. The US policy is thou shalt not do that because we control the world order that we've set up which suits us. And that's a continuation of uh, British imperialism before that. And, you know, the uh, treat, treat the nations of the world as 
colonial possessions to be to have their raw materials extracted from them, etc. And any, anything that goes against that, which is what China's investment program in the Belt and Road, etc., is doing, actually raising living standards, that cannot be tolerated. That's right. And that raises the question, well, why is Australia doing this, apart from the, the being locked into the uh, military alliance? It's that we are inextricably intertwined in the American rules-based order, which, of course, Morrison and Dutton and others keep referring to. Um, we cannot extricate ourselves from the um, US dominance of our economy. Um, it is 10 times greater than China mm. um, uh, in, in uh, the Australian economy. We cannot extricate ourselves from the, um, the, the international financial system. Uh, and so therefore, it seems that the government and indeed the opposition have bought into the idea that we have to do everything in our power to sustain United States world dominance. Well, that is, the, that is the prevailing view. So you have another story from your day where, again, <coughs> it reflects a, a, at least the existence of a different attitude in government. This one, this one, I think people need to reflect on from the standpoint of the AUKUS announcement where we blatantly stood there with Joe Biden and Boris Johnson and Australia. And we've set up this, this new alliance that our security is going to come from two countries on the other side of the world, two white countries, right? And that sent a message to our neighbours, all our Asian neighbours, that we are seeking security from you, right, um, because you are somehow collectively a threat to us, especially China. So you were involved in a fascinating uh, incident uh, when you were, uh, what was the ambassador to? I was at UNESCO. At UNESCO. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, first comment, of course, is the announcement of AUKUS and um, the related uh, defence arrangements and um, weapons purchases and all the rest of it that Australia has committed itself to doesn't only appear to our Southeast Asian neighbours and indeed our mm. Pacific neighbours as uh, seeking protection from them because of all the, the, the all these weapons that we're acquiring are fundamentally offensive yes, weapons. Yes, yes. We are placing ourselves as an, as an aggressor against uh, Southeast Asia and the Pacific. Uh, None of our near neighbours endorsed no. our hostility to China. None of our near neighbours welcomed AUKUS. And it's apparent to me that at the same time as we declared we were moving into AUKUS in order to impose United States and NATO's dominance in the Asia-Pacific region, our Southeast Asian neighbours upgraded their comprehensive strategic partnership with China at the same time as we were making that announcement. So we have, we have succeeded in further in isolating ourselves from our own region. Yes, and that brings us, of course, to when I was at UNESCO. I was permanent delegate to UNESCO. And again, my prime directive was to... Uh, in, to improve and enhance Australia's integration into the Asia-Pacific group in UNESCO. And this was around 89, 90, something like that? <clears throat> yes, I went there in 1988, 88, straight okay, from yeah. Tehran, right. um, and took over the position that Gough Whitlam had occupied as permanent delegate to UNESCO. Right. He became uh, a member of the executive board of UNESCO. And so... My job in practical terms was to support Whitlam yep. uh, any time he came to Paris to uh, exercise his functions as a member of the executive board. But um, in policy terms, it was to ensure that as a very, very brand new member in the Asia-Pacific group, we used to belong to the Western European oh, and right. others group. <laughs> right. <laughs> and um, Gough Whitlam had managed to uh, get agreement that Australia could be incorporated into the Asia-Pacific group. Um, <clears throat> so my job was to 
improve our integration in the Asia-Pacific group. And the particular incident that I think is significant is that uh, we decided uh, in Canberra that we would back Goff's Whitlam's nomination to the chairmanship of the executive board. Right. At the same time as we took that decision and started lobbying for uh, Whitlam as the Asia-Pacific representative as chairman of the executive board, Malaysia nominated their Minister for Education to the same position. That meant there were, there were competing candidates within the group. Right. That meant that the other groups, in particular the Africa group, said, well, if there's, a, there's going to be an open election, we'll put up our candidate as well. Because before and that it was just some kind of sharing arrangement? It was done by consensus. Right. Uh, the, the, the group whose turn it was to yep. occupy the chairmanship would unanimously put forward a yep. single candidate and the rest of the organisation would endorse that candidate. Uh, and that is how it has operated since uh, UNESCO was formed. Yep. But the Africans in particular and the West Europeans said, OK, well, if it's a competition, we'll put up our candidate. So everything was unravelling. Mm. And I spent about five hours locked in a very small room at UNESCO headquarters with Goff, arguing over what to do. And I've, I think I can probably claim to be the only person who ever managed to get Goff to stand down from an election. <laughs> because I, I said to him, look, Malaysia, Mahathir, the Prime Minister of Malaysia at the time, Dr Mahathir, uh, had a negative view of Australia. Mm. He still viewed Australia as a stalking horse for the West. Yep. And uh, if Goff went ahead with his... Uh, bid for the chairmanship. Which Goff clearly wanted to. Which he was originally quite keen to do. Yes. Um, that it would be uh, a slap in, fa in the face for Malaysia, which would only worsen Australia's relations yeah. with Dr Mahathir, and uh, a slap in the face to the Asia-Pacific group, yeah. of which we were supposed to be a cooperative uh, partner. So to cut a long story short... He finally said, well, comrade, I'll do it. I'll go in there and I'll tell them I'm throwing my support behind the Malaysian candidate on one condition. You don't tell Canberra till I've done it. <laughs> and uh, Well, let me applaud you for, that, for achieving that. that. <laughs> So, Talking Goff Whitlam down. Um, that, that, I think, helped to reinforce mm. the, our sense of partnership with our neighbours. That was the motivation. We wanted to show good faith to our neighbours. And so now what are we doing? We attend the foreign minister's meeting of the NATO countries yeah. and immediately NATO announces that Australia, through AUKUS, is going to uh, assist... NATO to intensify its presence in the Asia-Pacific region. Yep. In, in other words, Australia is going to help the re-imposition of Western colonial domination of Asia. That ain't going to happen. No. Asia is a very different place now from what it was in the uh, middle of the 20th century at the time of the Second World War and immediately afterwards. Not only China is a lot stronger, but so are all of the other yep. Asian countries. Indonesia is our nearest neighbour, but we've alienated Indonesia. We don't have a defence cooperation arrangement with Indonesia anymore. Indonesia does not endorse AUKUS. Not, no, Indonesia uh, clearly regards AUKUS as a threat. Yep. Yep. So... Uh, we are in an ever-weakening position within our own region. And I, I f find it personally very upsetting because 
um, as I've tried to illustrate, mm. I basically devoted my 30-year career yep. to exactly the opposite approach. Um, quietly and subtly, often just in the background, um, but um, always with a view to exercising as far as we can some degree of independence in our foreign policy decision-making. Uh, and that has all gone. And as we discussed last week, though, you essentially when you retired, you know, you, you could retire, I won't, I won't put birds in your mouth, but say contented that this was well, on yes, track. Well, I, I, I retired after 30 years, partly because the stress of the whole thing was, the whole process of <laughs> diplomacy was starting to tell on my health. Yeah. Uh, my doctor, in fact, said to me at one stage when I went with another ailment, he he said, you have a greater variety of advanced stress symptoms than I've ever seen in any one patient. You have to do something about it. And in that same year, six of my contemporaries in foreign affairs died of stress-related illnesses. So I decided I would get out. I felt I could reasonably comfortably get out. I felt I had achieved much of what I yep. had set out to do. And I could just go on with a private life. Um, but all this talk of war with China, the, the idea that Australia must prepare for war uh, and that we are going to sort of advance to the front and defend Taiwan against China and all the rest of it is so alarming that uh, I need to um, just remind people of this whole process of ramping up the China threat. First of all, the China threat is simply a repetition of the, the yellow peril, yes. which, is a, which was a repetition of the white Australia policy. Yep. It was always Sinophobia, and it still is. And uh, by a process of uh, intensive propaganda, the, the Australian body politic and the Australian people have been drawn into this hostility or at least fear of China. And I think it's worthwhile quoting uh, Hermann Goering, who was the Nazi war criminal uh, who was punished by the Nuremberg trials and was ultimately executed. And in an, in an interview just before he was executed, he was asked, how was it possible that Nazi Germany was able to bring all of the German people along with it. And he said, that's easy. The people can always be brought to do the bidding of the leaders. All you have to do is tell them they are being attacked. Denounce the peacemakers for a lack of patriotism and exposing the country to danger. It works the same in any country, quote, unquote. That sounds like a description of We've what is happening in Australia at this very moment. We are eyewitness to that. That brings us to this week, because on Anzac Day, um, our Defence Minister, Peter Dutton, said we must prepare for war. And then a point I've been making about it, John, is that the opposition the next day Penny Wong, who until now has been a more level-headed person on this subject, she, in her own way, almost tried to outdo the government in hyping the threat, and the threat being the Solomon Islands, where she said that a military base in the Solomon Islands, 2,000 kilometres from our shore, is of severe danger to Australia or something to that yeah, effect. quite. And um, when you hear that, those, those sort of specific uh, terms, um, what's your reaction? Well, my reaction, reaction, first of all, is that it's sheer insanity on all, the, all levels. Uh, the idea that we could possibly win in a military conflict with China is, is absurd, yeah. and Peter Dutton himself has made that very plain. Uh, amongst his remarks on Anzac Day, he repeated the fact that China is building naval forces the equivalent of the Australian Navy, once every 18 months. Yeah. So their naval forces 
vastly outweigh anything we could possibly hope to bring against them. And what are we going to do? Um, a, a retired Admiral Chris Barry asked the same question. Mm. You're going to draw a red line on, on the Solomons? Does that mean we're going to, we're going to bomb uh, uh, Chinese warships if they come into the port in the Solomons? What are the consequences of us doing that? We've yep. not, th not thought it through. Secondly, the idea of a Chinese military base in the Solomons is basically a fiction. Yep. We had no one, not even anybody in the Australian government or in the intelligence community, has actually seen the final text of the agreement. Prime Minister Sokovari has said that the agreement does not provide for uh, the presence of Chinese military or naval uh, occupation of a base yep. in the Solomons. It is not about that. So mischaracterising the, the agreement as a security agreement with the Solomons is quite wrong. The only thing that we do know is that Sogavari agreed that the Chinese could provide security for its own personnel working on the development project, which is a policing operation and, and really nothing much more than that. Um, and I just certainly don't uh, regard uh, that kind of an arrangement as the equivalent of a naval base. But America and Australia, Morrison said, I'm just repeating the American red yep, line. Yep, I share America's red line on this. I share America's red line on this. And that red line is, thou shalt not have a Chinese base in the Solomons. That is another example of our autocratic, mm. paternalistic approach. The very terminology of the Pacific Island nations as being in our backyard and part of our Pacific family is extremely paternalistic. It's very insulting to those countries. It implies that we determine that they have no independence. Yep. It's basically saying, oh, you're part of our family and you have to obey daddy. And if daddy says you can't do something and you do it, daddy will punish you. It's as paternalistic as that. And I find it really extraordinarily offensive. Um, and I have no doubt in my mind whatsoever that all of our Southeast Asian neighbours are looking at our response to the Solomons and saying, this is Australia's attitude towards us as well. And they're equipping themselves with offensive weapons. So we, Southeast Asia, yeah, had better yeah. watch out, which is why they moved to upgrade their strategic comprehensive partnership with China. So in us taking measures to increase our security, we are actually making ourselves less secure in the region because we're stoking a form of an arms race yes. and driving our other potential um, allies, like the Pacific Islands, into China's arms. Yes. And to characterise uh, the Chinese uh, building of a port in uh, the Solomon Islands as equivalent to the Battle of Guadalcanal <laughs> uh, and stemming the, yep. uh, the Japanese imperial invasion uh, is, again, arrant nonsense. And we should bear in mind that Japan was the only country that ever attempted anything like an invasion of Australia. It bombed Darwin. That was commemorated only a couple of days ago. Yes. It, had uh, submarines in Sydney Harbour. Um, and yet Morrison has sp spat on the graves of Australian diggers from the Kokoda Trail to the Guadalcanal to the uh, Coral Sea. Um, all of those Australian diggers who fought to hold the, J the Japanese back spat on their memory by entering into a freedom of access agreement for Australian and Japanese forces. Austra uh, Japanese forces can now conduct military operations in Australia. Yes. Which is something that we're not, we're not able to achieve in the Second World War. And now they've got it. 
That's well, that's true. My grandfather was one of the ones who fought them back on the Kokoda track. Yeah. Um, uh, John, remind the viewer, please. We touched on you. Did you went big with this last time we spoke, and you've written about this, but. Australians need to be very aware when we talk about how has it come to this that there is a United States strategy at play here in which we are merely a pawn or a, the proper term is a proxy. Yeah. Yes, I have I've, in almost every time I speak to anyone and particularly in a, a conversation like this or in, in, a, in public speaking, uh, my main focus is on the fact that in pursuit of the Wolfowitz Doctrine, preventing the rise of any power to challenge the United States, is now the strategy of denial. The strategy of denial was worked out in relation to China, which uh, the United States has defined as the principal threat. Yep. The strategy of denial means arm Taiwan to the hilt, conduct a vilification campaign against China to make it the, the aggressor in the eyes of the world, encourage Taiwan to move to separate itself from the sovereign territory of China and thus instigate a war between China and Taiwan. That's what lies behind what the United States is doing. Mm. So at the highest level of policy discussion between President Xi Jinping and President Biden, the United States says, oh, yes, we abide by the One China Principle and the reinforcement of our alliances is not directed at China. Pull the other one. Mm. Because everything that's happening below that level is quite obviously directed in the exact opposite direction. I, I'm a little bit encouraged by the, the fact that I think Chinese, whether they are on Taiwan or whether they are in Beijing, are pragmatic people. Mm -hmm. And uh, a document that, as I recently became aware of, um, put out by Taiwan says Taiwan is one of the biggest investors in China. By the end of 2021, that investment amounted to 193.51 billion US dollars. Mm. That same document adds that the Cross-Straits Economic Cooperation Framework concluded in 2010, that's 12 years ago, yeah. and is still in operation, aims to institutionalise trade and economic relations between Taiwan and China. I read through, uh, word for word, the address by President Xi Jinping and the address by Premier Li Keqiang to the Chinese People's Political Consultative Congress, which is preparing for the National People's Congress later this year, and they were setting out uh, the coming five-year plan, the government's plans for the next five years. There was not a single word in either address, and they were very lengthy, mm. that could be interpreted as a plan for aggression outside China's borders. Right. And Li Keqiang only mentioned Taiwan in terms of cooperation with Taiwan under the Economic Cooperation Framework Agreement uh, and talked about compatriots in Taiwan. So um, China is not trigger happy mm. and it would take an enormous amount, I think, to actually successfully goad China into mounting a military operation as um, President Putin calls it in Ukraine, yeah, yeah. Um, against Taiwan. Now That creates a further danger for Australia because we are still being manoeuvred and we're still allow we st are still allowing ourselves to be manoeuvred 
into the position of the principal proxy for the US war against China. So, hang on. So you're saying that um, our current political leadership is being more reckless in this regard than the government of Taiwan and we might be the trigger for war? The way we're going, yes. Because, I mean, we've said Solomon's is a red yeah, line. Yeah, if there are yeah, any yeah. Chinese warships there, we're, what are we going to do? We're, we're not going to allow it, which means how, yeah. are we going to not, how are we going to not allow it? We are going to have to use some sort of military uh, means to prevent uh, that from happening. And that is absolutely futile, but it does trigger a war between Australia and China not including Taiwan and not including the United States. Well, this is, this is highly alarming and I just want to remind the viewer that you're, you're presenting this as an experienced diplomat who surveys the chessboard at a, at a, with a level of expertise that most of us don't have. Well, and I spend can, many hours pursuing the detail, let's can, put it that way. Exactly, but as like expert chess players can see the moves, many, many moves ahead, and you're already seeing that. Yes, well, that, this is, that's right. This, this is, is very alarming. This is, uh, you know, this is the king, the United States, moving its knight into position. And um, <clears throat> I think we are very foolishly allowing ourselves yeah, to be yeah. drawn into that, that uh, scenario. Um, the, the war in Ukraine is quite clearly a proxy war. It's Ukraine fighting the war against Russia on behalf of the United States. And Congressman Adam Schiff last week said, the United States aids Ukraine and its people so that we can fight Russia over there and that we don't have to fight Russia over here. We just have to change a couple of words. The United States is aiding Australia yep. so that Australia can fight China over there so that we, the US, do not have to fight China over here. The strategy of denial is to ensure that mainland United States and all United States military assets are not drawn into direct military conflict with China. They will fight the war indirectly using proxies. That yep. is their stated policy. And I've just... I've just um, uh been reminded now from you saying that of another um, chess piece that's been moved that we report in our alert service this week, which is the Australian Strategic Policy Institute has a new director. Um, and we know the role of the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, funded by the US State Department and all these big weapons companies, etc., has played in the propaganda that has shifted Australia on this path. But the, but the old director, Peter Jennings, who is famous for having advised John Howard to commit Australia to the Iraq war, mm. not because Iraq was a threat, but solely because we needed to be on the United States side, yeah. right? He's now retiring, and the replacement is Justin Bassey, whom Matthew Pottinger from the US National Security Council gushed, was, was gushing in his praise of, because he said, Justin Bassey has guided from his position in the Foreign Affairs of Minister's Office and the Prime Minister's Office, the Australia's strategic realignment over the last few years, which is the thing that we've been alarmed yes, about, Australia's antagonism against China. Strategic realignment. So realignment. He will be now the propagandist in chief against yes. China in this next period. Yes. Uh, continually reinforcing the fact that Australia has no strategic independence. Yes. We cannot determine our own fate. Yes. Uh, and as I was saying, I, I am personally extremely afraid that we are being manoeuvred into the position of being the principal proxy in a war against China. And um, the United States is desperate to find a trigger for that. And the Solomons has provided a very useful excuse. It hasn't got there yet. Um, as I said, I think China and Taiwan, Beijing and Taipei, despite all their, their differences, are being very circumspect yep. uh, on both sides. And uh, we are not. We are not acting with caution. We are not curbing our bullhorn diplomacy. 
we have not entered into uh, any kind of conversation with Beijing. The new Chinese ambassador's conciliatory remarks when he arrived in Australia were dismissed. Spurned. Spurned by Scott Morrison. I don't think he's had an interview with the Prime Minister even yet. No. And that would have been a first step towards normalising relations with China, which, of course, Morrison and Dutton keep saying they want to do. Yeah. But how can you normalise relations with a, a powerful, the second most powerful country in the world, if you stand on the sidelines with a megaphone and shout insults at them? That is not the way to establish a diplomatic dialogue. We don't have to agree with China on everything, but we have to recognise and reinforce the mutual benefits that can be obtained. I find it utterly amazing that China has, in fact, remained a friend of Australia. It's still supporting, overall, our trade with China. I yep. think I mentioned last yep. time. Yep. It's increased. It sent us some warning signals by curbing some aspects of Australian exports which are not essential to the Australian economy. But it hasn't actually declared that Australia is an enemy of China. We keep saying China is an enemy of Australia, which of course positions us as China's enemy. But China has not in fact endorsed that and has not said, yes, Australia is China's enemy. Uh, not yet, but we're getting closer and closer to that situation. Well, John, this has been very sobering. Um, as you know, the Citizens Party, we're probably the most outspoken party in Australia on this issue. We are committed to fighting back against it. So that's a, there's a political fight to be waged, which we are waging. However, um, let's conclude with you. Let me ask you for some advice so that the viewer can be a bit of a, a reference point of what, what, how they would know if the Australian government ever does change its view on this and tries to be genuinely con, um, uh, conciliatory and, and, and improve the relationship, what sort of concrete, concrete steps could they take to start to turn this around? What would you advise if you were still in foreign affairs? Well, the first piece of advice I would give is the one I gave last time, that <clears throat> we should parrot Biden's own words in... Uh, back to China in saying that Australia adheres to the one China principle yep. and that uh, it is not Australia's intention to go to war with China over the status of Taiwan. Biden has said those two things. Yep. We can say those two things as well. Yep. And that has the possibility of at least opening the door to some dialogue. <clears throat> the, that dialogue would then have to be conducted um, quietly, politely, respectfully uh, discussing all aspects of the relationship, especially the trade relationship, but also people-to-people -people relationship, which is very important. Uh, the Chinese population in Australia is over 5% of the, the total Australian population. Mm. Uh, we have important organisations like the Australia-China Business Council, whose interests are quite clearly the opposite of yep. going to war with China. Um, <clears throat> the other thing is, as I said, the other thing we as a nation can do is uh, become more vocal as a people mm. and speak out against going to war with China and say, no, the Australian people yes. do not want a war with China. We want to tell the United States and the Australian government that the people do not want a war with China, that there is nothing in Australia's interests in going to war with China. We need an anti-war or peace movement in Australia. Hear, hear. Well, John, thank you very, very much again for coming back for part two of this interview. I encourage the viewer, as last time, please share this as widely as possible. I think these historical insights um, like I said, they blew me away when John first told me because I'm a slightly younger man than John. 
my political <laughs> career has coincided with this much, much worse period. And I, I have a lot to do with Australian politics. I have not detected a skerrick of this kind of independence that was there when John was serving in the Foreign Affairs Department. And we need to get it back. You should have said, I'm a lot older than you. <laughs> <laughs> John, I'm a diplomat. <laughs> All right. So thanks for tuning in. Thanks again, John. Please share this widely and keep following the, um, the YouTube channel for the Citizens Party's ongoing campaign on this issue. Authorised by Craig Isherwood, Citizens Party Melbourne.